Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast. Each episode we discuss what leadership challenges aspiring entrepreneurs face as they build and scale their startups. I'm your host, Michael Fröhlich. For the past four years, I've been running the Center for Digital Technology and Management, short CDTM. There, I help to connect, educate and empower university students to drive innovation through technology. My next career step will be founding a startup myself. To be ready for the journey ahead, I want to learn from people that have done it before. I want to deep dive into their experiences. In the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast, you can expect exciting conversations about the tactics and strategies that it takes to succeed as a startup founder and a leader. Welcome to the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast, where we explore the journey of starting and growing a successful business. Today we are joined by Sophia Höfling. Sophia has worked in product roles in startups such as Navis and Bubble and co-founded Saiga, where she took the role of CPO, Chief Product Officer. I was eager to get Sophia on the podcast to learn more about her role as CPO in a startup, in particular in the very early stages, when there might not yet be a product in the first place. Right now, Sophia has taken a more strategic role at a German SME. And in the second part of the podcast, we dive into the question of what startups might learn from work culture in the German Mittelstand. Sophia, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Sophia, can you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and the products you have been working on? Sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Frankfurt here in Germany. And I've studied industrial engineering at the Technical University in Munich. Um, also technology management at the CDTM, the Center for Digital Technology and Management, where the two of us actually know each other from. And later on, I've also done a master's in interaction design in Copenhagen. So I've always been very interested in this intersection between tech and business and design. And um, in terms of products I've worked on, during my bachelor's, I worked for Autoloader, a startup that developed robots to automatically load luggage into airplanes. Hmm. And um, later, during my master's, I've been one of the first working students at Celonis, a company that develops process mining software. And yeah, unfortunately, Autoloader eventually failed, but uh, Celonis became a decacorn. So for me, this was already, during my studies, a really cool learning experience to see that Entrepreneurship is fun, but really hard. And um, no matter how much work you put into a product, especially if you try something new and uh, work on something technically complex, you can really never be sure that it succeeds. And um, for my first full-time role, I've joined Navis, a startup that is developing solutions to digitize indoor spaces. So hardware devices that you use to scan a building from inside and then the respective virtual reality software to work with the virtual building data afterwards. And at Navis, I was building up and leading a customer experience team or department that was then broken up into four different teams. And this department was really handling a wild mixture of <laughs> different topics. <laughs> Um, at the beginning, it was mainly a customer success team. And then later on, a solution engineering team came on top, a customer education team, and then also a product team. And at the end, I also had a, a pricing specialist and a program manager in my team. So, so while you were at Navis, mm -hmm. uh, how big was the company when you started roughly? And when um, you left mm -hmm. again, so what was the transition there? <laughs> I think when I started, we were like seven, eight people. And when I left, 180. So, so it was really like four growth. years. <laughs> yeah, four years growth. Like at the beginning, we were sitting in a small room in university, like <laughs> six people crunched into this tiny yeah. PhD room. And at the end, like, yeah, offices in Munich and New York and Shanghai. So It was quite a ride. <laughs> when, you, when you started there, what were the first uh, products of Navis looking like? So I, I occasionally see the videos now on, uh, on LinkedIn and it's like this lightweight shoulder mounted uh, device. And it like at least in the videos, I find them magical in how 
quick they are to map out spaces. But I imagine yeah. at the beginning it was a bit more figuring out what the product actually should be. Yeah, absolutely. I think when I joined, we basically two weeks in, we um, delivered the first product to our first customer. And this was really, yeah, I couldn't really call it a product. It was a <laughs> prototype. So it was this uh, kind of, we called it trolley. So this robot two meters high that you push around a building to scan it. And um, yeah, obviously it was completely new technology. It broke every 15 minutes <laughs> and um, <laughs> it was, um, yeah, it, it took us, I think, a year to really get it to, to a stable um, product. But it was very cool to have customers who believed in us early on and really helped us to, to get to that point. Yeah. <clears throat> and so you started yeah. with these seven people, but then really built up also the uh, the what was it, an, a, more design, more customer success department? How would you characterize it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, we called it customer experience team. And at the beginning, the idea was that we had this hardware and then we had two different types of software, one software to process the data then one software to work with the data. And we really needed a team that offered all kinds of services around this educate our customers on how to use the hardware, but also the software, help them with like first and second level support. So that was the, the first topic that my team was handling. Um, but then we realized, okay, we, we really need a dedicated team to build this education content um, mm -hmm. and kind of write a technical manual and all that. So that was the, the second team. And then at some point we decided, okay, we want to build a platform around our products where our customers and partners could manage their software licenses, could buy add-on solutions that some partners had developed. So we built up a small product design and engineering team that uh, built this, this customer portal or customer platform. And um, yeah, and then, as I said, there were some special roles, like a pricing yeah. specialist ended up in my team, a program manager who helped coordinate our hardware and software releases to make sure they all fit together. So, yeah, I think in hindsight, I'm not sure if it was super smart to summarize all these different functions in one team. But for me personally, it was really cool. Um, because I learned a ton about all these different functions and um, also how to lead these very different types of teams, like some very operational, like first level support, and then like a product design and engineering team, like very, very different type of people and roles. <clears throat> yeah. So after having this experience um, in Navis and growing with the company, um, Uh, why did you decide to, to uh, change roles and uh, go to Bubble in Berlin, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think at Navis, I realized that I really wanted to focus on product management. But in the end, my team, I think in the end, we were 30 people and the majority was rather customer success, education, more like the, an operative team. And... Um, so I, I thought, okay, I want to focus on product. And I also felt I'd, I had done this right from a tiny company to um, yeah, 180 people organization. I just wanted to do something new. So I left, but I didn't move directly to Bubble. I actually took a year off and studied interaction design in Copenhagen. And um, yeah, only then I, I went to Bubble. And yeah, at Bubble, I actually had the chance to build up a completely new product, so something like an Airbnb for language travel. Oh, cool. um, but unfortunately, <laughs> I was three weeks into this new job when Corona hit the world. And um, yeah, obviously with Corona, also this product initiative died because no one wanted to travel anymore. <laughs> And um, then I was moved to the, let's say, normal uh, organization where we were building this uh, language learning app, a B2C language learning app. And I was managing three product teams, which was cool. But I think I rather quickly realized that I'm not made for scale-ups and for optimizing products. Uh, I think it's not really what drives me and also not what I'm particularly good at. So I, I didn't spend too much time at Bubble, but left after around a year and um, then joined Zyga as a late co-founder and CPO. 
And um, at Zyga, we were building this personal digital assistant that should support you with all kinds of private life admin. So things like booking doctor's appointments, train tickets, or applying for parental benefits. And we wanted to build this one app for you um, where you could hand in all these different tasks and then in the background automate the work um, with robot process automating and also natural language processing. And we brought this first version of uh, the product on the market, and I think it worked out pretty well. Um, we actually had some quite excited paying customers, but uh, eventually we did not get any more funding around mid of last year. And then we had to shut down a 40-people company, which was also quite a big learning experience for me. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Yeah. It doesn't so, sound like a yeah, pleasant think... one, but... Uh... <laughs> No, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think also also learning experience and yeah, so to sum things up, I think all the products I've worked on, maybe with the exception of Bubble, have always been very like tech-driven, tech-enabled products, like be it with robotics or computer vision or natural language processing, and they've all been early stage products. And because I think these are two things that really excite me, building things on the green field and also using technology in new ways to solve problems that you couldn't really solve before. Very interesting to hear uh, what experience you've made over, over the years and uh, also the diversity in it is just astonishing. Uh, hardware, software product, really running a team with a lot of diverse roles, then also during Corona, moving to Bubble, having really a software product there, and now with Saiga, really building something that is a digital product but interfaces with the real world, so you, right, getting real world tasks done. Uh, and since you're the first product manager on this podcast, uh, I want to kind of ease into this uh, topic with a couple of rather broad uh, questions, if that's okay. Um, sure. Maybe To start out really, really broad, can you break down what the role of a product manager generally encompasses? Mm -hmm. um, I think the PM, so the product manager role, is defined and lived very differently from company to company. So sometimes it's a very hands-off and strategic role. Sometimes it's the opposite. It's very operational and more of a product owner role um, focused on execution and without the responsibility to take any long-ranging strategic decisions. So I think for me, it's hard to give a general definition, but um, yeah, maybe my personal definition. Um, from my point of view, the PM role is ideally both, something very operational and strategic at the same time. And the way how I think about it is that if you want to build a successful product, this product needs to be technically feasible. It needs to be valuable for the customer. It needs to be usable for the customer. And it also needs to be viable for the business because otherwise, why should the business invest and build this product? Mm -hmm. And to ensure um, that you make all of this happen, you need an interdisciplinary team. You need a product manager but you also need engineers and usually designers and sometimes also copywriters and illustrators and data analysts. And I think it's often relatively clear um, to everyone what, for example, engineers are responsible for. But for the PM role, this is sometimes a little harder to understand because I think the PM role is kind of a special role. And... Um, I think you can basically break it up into two main things. First, the PM needs to make sure that the product is viable. So mm -hmm. it really creates a clear business outcome and at the same time valuable for the customer. So this is not the, the special part about this role. This is rather a clear responsibility for two of these key four key uh, criteria of a successful product. But what is special about the PM role is that the PM is also playing this coordinating role. So they orchestrate this entire cross-functional team of people to ensure that also the other two factors are met so that the product is not only viable and valuable, but also technically feasible and um, usable. So eventually the PM needs to make sure that everything comes together and creates the desired outcome. 
And that means the PM is basically leading this team without really being the manager or the boss of anyone in the team. Oh, interesting. So I, I really like this idea of having uh, these different dimensions in there. And uh, I always like to think in terms of roles and also how organizations well organize themselves uh, uh, as looking at it uh, as a type of information flow in essence. So you want to have uh, people who take decisions to have the best possible information to take this decision. And from what you said, it, the role of the product manager is basically to understand the technical feasibility of a product by interfacing with, let's say, engineers, uh, the business vi viability by really having the business sense and un understanding maybe also strategic implications, and then also coordinating the different resources and getting this information from the specific uh, people involved. And I imagine that's also why this job is quite different in different companies with different products, because mm -hmm. maybe with Bubble, right, or a digital product, uh, you need to have a different understanding or different types of uh, peoples and roles involved as compared mm -hmm. to Navis now with uh, two software products and the hardware product and understanding how this product is used and can be successful involves a lot more people there, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think the, the setup, the team setup is different from company to company. Um, and then, yeah, also kind of the, the knowledge you need as a PM. If it's a very technical product, then um, you cannot just rely on the engineers. Then you need to have a good technical understanding yourself. If it's a product like Bubble, maybe you don't need to be um, and, and you don't need to have an engineering background, but you need to have a good understanding of uh, learning science and kind of yeah, make sure you uh, take the right decisions from a learner's perspective, for example. Yeah. So. Uh You had a lot of experience uh, from Autoloader now uh, all the way to, to uh, Saiga as in this product management or in different product management roles. I would uh, be curious to hear from you when and also how you knew that product management, this interdisciplinary uh, role was the right career choice for you. <laughs> yeah, I think I realized that probably only during my time at Navis. Um, yeah, as I said, this department at Navis was super diverse. And at some point I realized that um, th this kind of customer success thing is very interesting, but that the thing that really excites me was product management and also the program management part in my role. This was really the thing I was reading up on a ton of things in the evening and the, the meetups that, that I joined. And I think what excited me about this role is the fact that I think it's a pretty unique combination of something very analytical and very creative at the same time. And you don't find that too often in any kind of job. And, um, and then what you said, I think also this fact that it's very interdisciplinary. And I think I was always someone who was not really sure what I am. Am I an engineer? Nah, not really. <laughs> Or a business person, a designer. I was never so sure. And then I thought like, oh, cool. So product management is somehow this, this thing in the middle. <laughs> you don't need to, to be a full engineer or a kind of a designer with 10 years of experience, but you work somewhere in the middle and together with all these people. I imagine this is quite a great feeling when you kind of uh, feel like you don't fit into these uh, single roles and then you find something that combines all of that uh, and really fits mm -hmm. you. <laughs> so uh, from, from your experience, what skills and abilities define uh, or make a good product manager? And maybe also, right, there's a product manager really responsible for part of the product uh, in the beginning. Uh, and then maybe also later as a CPO. So a bit two questions in one, but uh, let's see. Yeah, but I, I think it's a good question because I think product management is somehow interesting in that sense. I think usually the skills required for an individual contributor and then the skills required for the manager of those individual uh, contributors are quite different. Like, for example, um, you need a very different skill set if you are an engineer versus a CTO or a head of engineering. 
But I think for the PM role, that's not quite true. I think the individual contributor role has actually many skills in common with the role of a product leader like a CPO. Mm-hmm. And this is because in like as an individually contributing PM, you are not a disciplinary manager of the team. So no one is reporting to you, but you still have this lateral leadership role because you are orchestrating this entire team and you are eventually responsible for uh, the outcome that this product creates. And therefore, I think, um, yeah, the, the skill set of a PM and then later a product leader are fairly similar. And I think they can mainly be broken down into four key buckets. I think first and foremost, you need all kinds of leadership skills. Like you need to be a good listener. You need to be someone who can really convince and excite people and rally people <laughs> behind the mission and the vision and and someone who's able to create real team spirit. And second, I think you need to be very analytical and able to connect the dots because like for the PM, building a product while considering all these different restraints, like market restraints, technology restraints, then all the internal company restraints, this is super complex. And I think the same holds true for a product leader who's building this product organization that is then eventually building this complex product. So I think both PMs and product leaders need to have the a really good understanding of many interrelated parts, and they also need to be able to take this high-level bird's-eye perspective on things. And third, I think you need to be really good at prioritization, um, which basically means taking decisions, because taking decisions is literally what you do all day long. Like, do we focus on this outcome or on that, or on that one? Do we... Um, focus on this problem or on that one? Do we build this solution or that? Do we fix this bug first or do we uh, continue to develop this feature? So at all those different levels, prioritization and saying yes to these very few critical things and saying no to a million other things that <laughs> one can do is really key. And um, yeah, I think the, the fourth bucket is... Um, that both PMs and CPOs um, need to be, let's say, creative visionaries. I think you need to be really able to think outside the box and come up with creative solutions to the problems that you want to solve. And yeah, based on my experience, this is something that often falls short. Um, I see a lot of PMs and also product leaders that are very analytical when it comes to evaluating a, a problem or an existing solution, but they lack the skill to come up with new innovative solutions. And I think ideating great solutions is nothing that you can outsource. Your customers won't tell you what to build and you cannot just copy the competition that only brings you so far. And of course, like coming up with new solutions is something that you do as a cross-functional team designers, engineers, everyone is, is coming in with ideas. But I think the PM and obviously also a, a CPO should really be the driving force behind this kind of solution ideation process and, and building a strong product vision. So, yeah, I, I think from my point of view, those are really the four key skills. Leadership, analytical thinking, prioritization, and then creative out-of-the-box thinking. And then, of course, as a product leader, so as someone who's managing a, a team, all kinds of management skills come on top, like being a good coach and being good at hiring the right people and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that the general management skills once the team grows uh, are never <laughs> something you should forget. But I, I really enjoy how you broke it down here. In how far is uh, the ability to both operate on a strategic level, but then also having this uh, eye for detail, uh, something mm -hmm. that, uh, that you observe with uh, people that are successful in this role? Or is it also that you can have either one and uh, work very well? Good question. Yeah, I, I think that depends a bit on how your company is structured. I, I know... 
friend of mine is working for a scale-up here in Berlin and there the PM role is super strategic and then they have something they have an engineering manager role and they are more like the, the ones who do the, the more operational work. So they are kind of these things are clearly split. But I think in I would say kind of the, the standard setup that most companies have, the role yeah encompasses both topics and people who can kind of go from this high level to the the nitty-gritty details are the ones who who really succeed i think i don't know this is something you saw with steve jobs he's like this great visionary but then he looks yeah. at like the curve of the <laughs> the macbook and kind of looks into the the last detail and kind of the font that has been used so i think these are really um yeah people that are also rare <laughs> who can go like very quickly from this very high to very low level but if you can then it's a big plus for this role yeah. cool so uh, there are quite a few skills for me to work on then uh, <laughs> so uh, when you Sophia when you took the role as founding CPO at uh, Saiga uh, what were your responsibilities uh, at this early stage so I'm just curious to hear what does a CPO really do pre-product or pre-product market fit? So when I joined Zyga, the team had already a pretty good idea of the overarching problem that they wanted to solve um, because they have already been working on that for a year. Um, but the first solution that they had built uh, wasn't really performing well. So my role was basically to go back to the drawing board together with this entire team that was already there and to define a new solution to this problem. And this also entailed defining our target group uh, more clearly. We were building this B2C live admin product and we eventually believed that our product would benefit everyone because no mm -hmm. one really likes to do all their, their live admin themselves. But based on my experience, um, it's never a good idea to target everyone right from the start. It's a lot easier um, if you focus on a smaller target group, a smaller pie, let's say, and then gain a big piece of this pie rather than the other way around, trying to gain a small piece of a big pie. So basically, my role was to lead the team to narrow down the target group and to define a product including the business model and also the respective success measures. And this obviously meant a lot of research and a ton of experiments with prototypes. We did, for example, not build a virtual assistant app with lots of automation in the back right from the start. But for around, I think, two months even, we ran an assistant service um, with around 80 alpha users via WhatsApp. And we yeah. as a team acted as the ones solving the user's request. So a so-called <laughs> Wizard of Oz prototype. So this was didn't really feel like product management. This was like, okay, we're operating this uh, live admin service um, for people. Um, but that was probably the best thing we could have done because we learned a ton and it really helped us in the later product phase. So, yeah, I think that was my experience at Zyga. More generally speaking, I think as a CPO in a pre-product market phase, you, you need to clearly define and verify the problem that you want to solve, um, including the target group. Um, and then as a next step, define and verify the product vision and the very first version of this product that would bring you a little closer to this vision. And I think ideally you do this with suitable prototypes that give you confidence in your solution before you really start building um, the, the real product. And only after you've won some confidence, then you can incrementally start building the first version of the product and continually measure if you're on the right track and then pivot as soon as you realize, okay, no, that's, that's the wrong decision. And I think only then... Um, at, at this point when you somehow feel like, oh, okay, cool, now we've maybe pivoted one, two times, but it seems we're now on the right track. I think only then is probably the point in time where you can think about growing the team and maybe 
hire your first PM. So I think at the beginning as a CPO, you're basically the, the PM of the product. And at Zynga, that was a bit different. There was already a PM because the team had worked on the topic for an entire year. And I was also responsible for product design. So I basically had two direct reports right from the start. But nevertheless, my role was very hands-on. I was yeah, working with them every day um, right on the product and not so much on kind of hands-off strategic topics. <clears throat> I really like this uh, Wizard of Oz approach you mentioned, and I think this falls uh, very nicely <laughs> or aligns very nicely also with this notion of do things that don't scale at the beginning, mm -hmm. especially yes. when, when you're really trying to figure out what kind of product, what, how are you solving your customer's problem in the end. And uh, I really mm -hmm. like this idea of just uh, starting this WhatsApp group and then Yeah, having the founding team basically be the assistants, I think it gives you great insights. <laughs> yeah, it really helped us to validate so many things where we were really afraid that people wouldn't hand in a lot of um, yeah, things that were very private or personal and wouldn't share them with us. And it, the opposite was the case. Like people <laughs> shared everything with us. And we were like, oh, wow, okay, there's a lot of trust apparently. <laughs> Um, but then we figured out some other things that we would have never expected turned out to be um, more difficult. So, yeah, I uh, can highly recommend this. So uh, you, you mentioned uh, or said that in the beginning also the CEO should kind of, uh, or maybe I misheard this now, but uh, I would be curious, right, so in the beginning, it's also a bit the notion of the CEO often taking over this development of this first product. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, I would be also curious how you went about at Saiga uh, or also more generally how you think about how you distribute responsibilities in the founding teams for teams that have a dedicated CEO uh, or, and a dedicated mm -hmm. CPO. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. I, I, yeah, I think who is responsible for this first product doesn't so much depend on the, the title, but more on how you define the title and how you break up responsibilities. So at Zyga, the CEO was the one bringing the machine learning expertise to the team. And he was the one who initiated this whole company and brought in the long-term vision for the product. But he had a research background. He came from Google DeepMind and he had not built a commercial product before. Um, therefore, The way how we split things up was that the two of us, together with our third co-founder and CTO, shared the responsibility of defining and continually refining this overarching, overarching product vision. But eventually the responsibility for developing the product strategy, so how exactly do we get to this vision, was mine. And then mm -hmm. also the responsibility for building up the, the product design and engineering organization was something that was shared between the CTO and myself. So I think the good thing about having this CEO, CPO, CTO set up in the founding team is that you have one person, in this case the CEO, who can really focus on all things finance, while you then have one or in our case two other people who can really focus on product. And I think many founders really underestimate how much time it takes to manage this kind of finance business side of things like investor relations, setting up accounting structures, coming up with proper pricing and so on and so forth. So I think if the CEO is also responsible for the product because you don't have a CPO, um, then you certainly need either a CFO or C COO um, to manage the finance things because that's just my opinion, but I think both finance and product are just too important and too big building blocks to summarize them under one person. And I guess that lack of focus on either of these two topics is also why so many startups fail, because either they run out of money or they don't find product market fit. And I would say even in our case at Zyga, we did not put enough focus on this kind of business financing side because the CEO was not only focused on that, but was also managing all the machine learning things on the side. 
Yeah. So uh, probably what I hear out of that is that there's way how you can probably split this also depending on the expertise you bring in. Uh, and then really yeah. having the CPO <coughs> develop the, uh, own the process, but also develop the vision for the customer facing part of the product uh, and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So kind of I'm, a lot of the things I'm currently thinking about uh, also with uh, having the ambition to found myself uh, in the near future is how, uh, which, mm -hmm. which kind of co-founders uh, would best uh, complement <coughs> me, but also how to generally mm -hmm. in terms of the skills they bring Uh, set up a founding team so I'm interested in hearing your take on uh, having a founding designer as part of the startups co-founding team what advantages that brings and maybe also um, which kind of business models or startups would benefit uh, especially from having one mm -hmm. yeah that's a nice question um, I think that first of all, one has to evaluate if design is a core function for the product or service that one is building. And I think the question to the answer to this question is always yes. If either your product is interaction heavy, so it requires a lot of in interactions between the product or service and the humans using it, like any software that is heavily controlled by an interface or something hardware like an e-bike. Um, and the answer is also yes, if a product um, is highly depending on a strong brand, um, like, for example, a skincare product or something like that. So for me, these are two cases where product design or brand design really plays a huge role. And the answer is probably no if you're, I don't know, BioNTech developing vaccines or if you're developing chemical plans that run for 10 years without any interruption and any necessity for a human being to interact with them. Um, in those cases, design just doesn't play a big role. But I think if the answer is yes, um, then to me, it's just logical that if a function plays a key role for the success of a company early, like right from the start, then this function should also be represented in the founding team. I mean, you would never find or, or rarely, I think, see a team founding a really tech-driven company without a techie in the founding team. Yeah. And um, I'm convinced that the founders are really the main drivers behind the DNA of a company. So if you want to build a design-driven company because your product is either interaction or brand heavy, then I think one should better bring a designer on board of the founding team. I think this was a great answer, also really connecting this back to what you're actually trying to achieve and what importance it plays into into the product you are aiming to build. So mm -hmm. <laughs> with this, I want to close the design and uh, product management part of this episode a bit and uh, move on to your newest role and uh, talk a bit about your experience in SMEs and the lessons startup can learn from that. Um, <coughs> I've uh, looked it up uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, Raikat, the SME you're working at, is 21 years old. So quite a change mm -hmm. from the startups you have previously worked at. So after <laughs> so much time, I'm just curious how you have perceived the change into this role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. It, it is quite a change. So it is uh, actually our family business, which uh, my dad has been running for the past 20 or 21 years. And, um, yeah, it's a completely uh, different world, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I, I think there is usually this notion that there is a lot that SMEs can learn from startups in terms of new work and digitization. Um, and this is definitely something that I've experienced. So, I mean, I worked for mainly software startups and scale-ups before, where you solve everything with software. Like you use Calendly to schedule appointments. You have something like Buchhaltungsbutler for bookkeeping. Um, so, yeah, I think you don't really think about it, but you just try out and introduce new software all the time. Um, but Rikert is a hardware company and, um, yeah, it's very old, <laughs> let's say, as a company. And um, I think 
the, the company is comparably well set up when it comes to digitized processes, but there's still quite some things where we're now introducing new software to increase efficiency. Um, and that also turned out to be part of, of my role at Rikard. Um, but yeah, and I think I, I really had this aha moment when I once opened a door in the office that I've never opened before, and <laughs> I found a room full of folders, an entire room full of folders and paper. And um, then I realized that, yeah, of course, startups um, do everything digitally right from the start. But Rikard is it's actually 40 years old because there was a former company that then turned into Rikard. So they have a ton of paper from back in the old days. And this is also part of the company's past and DNA. So obviously digitization is a bigger topic for those companies. Um, but um, this is, I think, only one side of the coin. Um, there's also a ton of things that I've realized that are done differently at Rikard as compared to any of the startups I've worked in before, where I thought, oh, that's actually pretty cool. And this is definitely something that a startup can learn from um, an SME. So do you, and, do you have an example yeah. there? Yeah, um, I think one example is um, my impression is that startups are often way too concerned with building up an outside image, like winning startup awards, going to an offsite and afterwards posting three LinkedIn <laughs> posts about it and a lot of yeah, like founder self-branding. And honestly, I think none of this is really bringing you any further to product market fit. <laughs> and I doubt that the time you put into these things is proportional to the employer branding effects that this might have. Um, I think that this is often much more of an ego thing to become like this hyped company in your little startup bubble, but is often missing the point of real entrepreneurship. And um, and I don't say that to bash startups. I've been in this <laughs> this world myself, but now seeing the 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 other side, I feel that SMEs. Um, often care much less about this kind of company brand building, um, but they really um, know their customers super well. They really know their industry. They are super nerdy about their products. And this product-led growth um, really works. I think they, they wouldn't probably call it product-led growth, but this is, yeah, they don't do so much marketing and branding, but they just convince because their products convince. And I think we have all these hidden champions in Germany that are market leaders um, with their products. But um, as a company, they are much less known as many startups that maybe raised a ton of funding, but don't yet have a single paying customer. And to me, yeah, this was really eye opening, this, this stronger focus on, on product rather than this kind of outside uh, image of, of your company. Um, yeah, that, that's one example. Another example is age diversity. Um, mm -hmm. At Rikert, we have an age span um, between 25 years and 63 years old. And this mix is really amazing. I think it combines really this decades of experience in the industry. And yeah, in German, you would say Menschenkenntnis, this knowledge about human nature from the older generation with this can-do attitude uh, and all the new ideas of the younger generation. And um, I think too many startups are only hiring people around the same age, usually below 40, which is nice for the team spirit. Everyone is in the same life stage, but I think they're really missing out on an important diversity aspect, um, which really brings a lot more perspectives to a company. Um, yeah. So I yeah. really like the idea of being a product nerd. <laughs> also, yeah, I think product-led growth, being a product nerd, I like that no the notion, just the phrasing. But then also, uh, as to what you just said last, right? So I think in the end, especially founders coming from university, uh, right, there's quite a variance in there. But uh, we normally try to recreate the environment we have experienced so far and that often includes mm -hmm. hiring people like us uh, mm -hmm. not just in in terms of age also with all kinds of other uh, demographic characteristics you can see and it's uh, mm -hmm. just so valuable also to 
be able to look beyond what you know to what might actually work and might actually provide a culture add to your team, not just a culture mm -hmm. fit. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think it is a challenge as a very young founder. I remembered myself at Nubis where I suddenly like hired people that were like 15 years older than myself. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what do they think? But I think if you create the right spirit and are very open and honest also that there's a ton that you can learn from these people then and yeah then then it can create a really um yeah great culture learning culture where like yeah older generation is learning from the younger one and the other way around so we talked a little bit about the Reichardt now and how the work culture there differs uh Maybe uh, also what I, as a listener, I would be now curious what Reichardt is actually doing and what your role encompasses there. I think uh, mm -hmm. when I last looked at your LinkedIn, you uh, were titled a hydrogen strategist. So quite <laughs> the name. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't really put too much thought into this name. Um, I think it works yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, well, maybe we'll start with what Rikard is doing, and then I talk about what, what I'm doing there and what a hydrogen strategist is. Um, so I think in, in startup terminology, you would probably call us a clean tech company, because <clears throat> what we develop is chemical plants to purify and recycle technical gases and waste air. So wherever technical gases of highest purities are produced and then used, for example, to manufacture titanium or fertilizers or flat glass, or now also to store and transport renewable energy as it's happening with green hydrogen. This is where our gas purification and also our gas recycling units are applied. And then wherever harmful waste air is produced, this is for example in coffee roasteries or in some uh, plastic manufacturers, Our waste air purification units come into play to produce clean, odor-free air. Um, yeah, so that's um, that's Rikard. And what my role is is yeah. Last summer um, we had to shut down Zyga, and this was a time when at Rikard we saw a super steep increase of demand for our green hydrogen purification units. Mm -hmm. And in the past, hydrogen purification had really been a a small niche market, but now thanks to this energy transition, it's becoming a high growth market. So my dad basically asked me to join the company and to help scale this part of the business. So it's no longer a product role, I would say rather a business development and strategy role. But um, yeah, it's really fun. And it also entails working with all different um, roles in the company with like, yeah, what can we do from a marketing perspective to scale this business? And with the engineers, we want to, at the moment, it's custom units and we want to standardize them and turn yeah. them into real products. So, yeah, my, my role is quite um, diverse, I would say. Yeah, so back at uh, at least a little bit of product interest, product nerdiness, mm -hmm. I, I still see uh, <laughs> if I hear that, even if it's more the strategy uh, dimension now. No, but really cool. Yeah. And uh, also, I think just uh, the time to do that. And I think especially if you want to uh, manage the ener energy transition in the coming years, uh, we definitely need all hands on deck. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, perfect if there's technology to build on that. <laughs> so uh, maybe to close the, the Reichardt part, uh, what are some differences in how things uh, beyond the ones you talked about Uh, that you noticed when you worked there compared to a startup environment? Um, I think one more thing that I noticed is that in this agile software world, um, where I spent my entire career, we spent way too much time in meetings. <laughs> um, I mean, I myself was very big on calling all kinds of alignment meetings all the time. Um, but then people are constantly complaining about not having enough focus time. And I'm not sure if this is special about Rikard or if it's a general SME thing, but at Rikard there are a lot less officially scheduled meetings. Um, but that doesn't mean that people are not collaborating. But I think the collaboration is just happening much more organically. So people just gather colleagues and discuss things when needed. 
So, for example, my dad, he has a quite empty calendar from my point of view, <laughs> but he is still spending most of the time talking to the team. So people just come into his office and catch him all the time and discuss things from him, get feedback, inform him about something. And to me, this really feels like a much more natural and also more productive way of working. Um, because I feel in this agile world, we actually turned to be very inagile. I don't know if you can say <laughs> it like that, right? like inflexible, um, because everyone feels like they all the time have to align every decision with everyone um, rather than having clearly defined responsibilities and also giving people the freedom to get things done in their way. So that's definitely um, something that, that I want to take with me <laughs> for my future career, less meetings, <laughs> clearer responsibilities. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's a good one. I'll, I'll keep this also in the back of my head. Uh, that's not too, too many readings there. Yes, Sophia, it, it's, it was a pleasure talking to you. Um, to close our episode, I have one final question I've been asking all guests on the show so far. If our mm -hmm. listeners... Uh, take one thing away from our episode. In your opinion, what should that be? <laughs> so I think as an entrepreneur, don't just look and copy Silicon Valley culture, but get inspired by SMEs, by the good old German Mittelstand, because there is a lot that you can learn from those companies, particularly when it comes to product management. I think, yeah, as I said before, they are really nerdy about their products and they really focus on product building first and company building second, which I think is a key to success for everyone responsible for building product in an early stage startup. Cool. So that's something to take away for everyone listening here. And uh, if some people, some listeners felt inspired, uh, have questions about Rikert or want to buy some hydrogen Uh, <laughs> modules, where can they get in touch with you, Sophia? Um, yeah, I think the easiest way is via LinkedIn, but I'm also quite active on Medium where I'm writing a blog about leadership and design and product, so um, yeah, this is where you can find some of my articles and also get in touch and ask questions. Yes, I think for everyone interested in product management, definitely check out Sophia's uh, Medium. I will put it into the show notes. And I've myself read a few articles here of her, so I can recommend them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> for everyone listening, thank you for joining us on the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast. We hope you enjoyed uh, this conversation and found it insightful. And we will be back with more expert guests and valuable insights on building and growing successful startups soon. Until then, uh, I will keep experimenting with uh, Spotify's uh, interactive features. So if you're listening on Spotify, uh, there is now an option to uh, give feedback and also to answer some questions I have there. And uh, I would be really happy for everyone uh, who gives this a shot and uh, lets me know how I can improve the podcast. With this, goodbye.